So Reverend Carl just asked, what really matters? Um, When he first suggested the theme, what really matters to me, I felt a little intimidated. Um, One might think that after three years of seminary and after studying holy texts and spiritual customs of many cultures over many eons, I'd have a pretty good grasp of what really matters. Um, At least I entered seminary with the expectation that by the time I graduated, all of my deepest questions would be answered. It's okay to laugh. Yeah. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) But I realized something really, really important. If you look closely at the front of your order of service, you'll notice a question mark at the end of the phrase, what really matters. That is important. And thank goodness. I'm not standing here trying to offer you an answer. I'm instead asking you to consider that very question, what really matters. Where is this question in your life right now, and where are you in relation to it Where are you positioned in space in relation to the things that matter to you? To answer the question, what really matters, we can turn to experts such as psychologists who have proven that lottery winners are rarely any happier than non-winners 18 months later. We've heard about the Princeton study that showed that relative happiness does not increase for folks with salaries above $75,000 a year. Warren Buffett, the third richest person on this planet right now, has said that he could live quite happily on a salary of 100000 a year. Buffett, I know, sounds good, right? <laughs> Buffett famously, though, lives a less than lavish lifestyle, saying, I live in the same house I bought in 1958, and I would spend $100 million on a house if I thought it would make me a lot happier But for me, this house is the happiest house in the world because it's got my memories. So, money matters, but only to a point. And it's a point that some of us are privileged enough to be currently hovering around. There are times that I watch my two boys running around or see a really gorgeous sunset, and I think, no Kardashian could be happier than I am right now. Social scientists tell us that humans are notoriously bad at predicting what will make us happy. Psychologist and author of Stumbling on Happiness, Daniel Gilbert, has said, The part of our brain that enables us to think about the future is one of nature's newest inventions. So it isn't surprising that when we try to use this new ability to imagine our futures, we make some rookie errors. And Professor Gilbert has suggested that our own culture uses this tendency towards error against us. He explains, Societies have a vested interest in deceiving their members about the sources of happiness. For society to function, many things must happen. For example, people must buy each other's goods and services, people must reproduce and raise children, and so on. He goes on, of course, people won't do these things for the good of society because people typically are interested in doing things for the good of themselves. So societies develop essential myths such as money will make you happy or children will make you happy, and these myths motivate their members to do what the societies need them to do. 
But research shows that neither of those things actually make people particularly happy. It's not Mother's Day anymore. (laughs) So what really matters then? I think one thing we can take away from Professor Gilbert's observations is that we need to be really, really careful about recognizing what we're told matters and how that may or may not match up to what really matters in our lives. So again, does money matter? Of course, to a degree. Do children matter? Yes. But like having money, having a white picket fence life with 2.5 children is really overemphasized in our culture. True happiness, for many of us, doesn't quite look like that picture. According to Abraham Maslow, our more basic needs must be met before we turn to our higher needs. And this is where the misconceptions about money or the perfect family comes in. According to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, what really matters is food, shelter, water, and air. Those needs are met in our society usually with money. All creatures, humans included, have a need for safety and security, which just cannot always be secured with money. The source of so much animosity and hate in our culture, I believe, is fear. A fear of insecurity, a fear of the unknown, And despite our basic animal desire for predictability and safety, the one unchanging fact about life that we all know is that it's going to change. And there's a word for change that is uncomfortable. Loss. The other part of this sermon is about farewell. This is my penultimate Sunday with you all as a congregation, and I really try to use the word penultimate as often as I possibly can. (laughs) Now that I am toward the end of my internship and will be saying goodbye to you next week, I'm ready to reveal a deep truth about myself. As you may have suspected, I am, in fact, a golden retriever dressed as a minister. (laughs) So... So what matters to me is pretty simple. I like to smile at people, and I want people to smile at me, and then I'd like a snack. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So far, I've been using the word happiness as the obvious answer to what really matters, because to me, happiness is the obvious answer. When I close my eyes to visualize what matters. I picture my family and my friends and all of you, and we're all happy, kind of like a golden retriever would. Could there be any other answer? Well, when you ask yourself what really, really matters, what comes to mind? What do you visualize? Health, happiness, world peace, safety, security for those and those you love, for you and those you love. Can you keep zooming in on that? What about that matters? At the base of it often is happiness. I think we're all looking for happiness, even when it shows up in different ways for different people at different times. Happiness can look like excitement. It can look like calm. It can take the shape of a family member or the shape of a pet or the shape of solitude. 
Recently, Krista Tippett from NPR's On Being had a conversation about this same topic with several experts who reiterated Daniel Gilbert's hypothesis. Author and lecturer Denise Pope spoke about the wide gap between answers to the question, how do you define success, among students and their parents. So while students tend to define success by speaking about grades, achievements, and careers, the parents would say, I want my child to be happy in life. This disparity, Ms. Pope contends, is not insignificant, nor is it insincere. Most parents do want happiness for their kids, but we live in a society that tells us that the way to achieve happiness is through grades, achievements, and careers. It's not untrue, but it's exaggerated to the point of obscuring the original question we started with. What really matters? I stand before you on the cusp of a new career, a career that will not bring me wealth, but will bring me loads of happiness. If we humans are terrible at predicting what will make us happy, I imagine what we can do is to quietly, carefully get to know ourselves. Recognize what brings you joy and peace, and look for more of that. Does the happiness that you envision take the shape of people, things, world peace, perfect health? Zoom in on that. Ask yourself why. For some people, I think many of us know people like this, the answer to what really matters is Jesus. And I think that after you zoom in on that answer and ask why, a new answer emerges, security. Jesus gives some folks a feeling of safety and happiness. That's an example. But this, learning to ask this very question and then zoom in and interrogate my own answer, is how seminary helped me get to the heart of what really matters. Working here with all of you helped me to answer the question for myself. I realized that I am indeed a golden retriever, and for me, warmth and love and eye contact and smiles make me happy. I even have an early memory of becoming acutely aware of this as a child, that seeing other people happy made me feel happy. I actually have a memory of thinking as a small child, huh, when that person smiles, it makes my brain feel good. So my wife, Nikki, and I have a border collie at home, and smiles and love do not make her happy. She has more important things to do. What makes her happy is doing work and feeling useful. Can some of you maybe relate? A little bit. That's fine. What really matters, I think, is this. This. Right here. Right now. This holy moment, as David Glasgow wrote. I think it is this holy moment, this holy place, that is made holy with the mystery that is us. This is what matters. Where you find yourself in the present. Maybe you're a little bit too hot because you're wearing a heavy robe, or maybe you're a little bit too cold because those of us who control the thermostat are wearing heavy robes. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
Maybe you're a little uncomfortable right now, or you're worrying about a bill that has to be paid, or stewing about an argument you had earlier, or you just don't like this whole sermon. And that's fine, (laughs) but that's all a part of it, part of what really matters. This holy moment, this space. So, as I prepare to say goodbye, as we all continue to again and again return to the present moment, even when it might not bring us the comfort and serenity that we desire, even when life keeps changing and loss keeps happening, the present, this holy place, exists, standing strong for us to return to. Come meet me here in this present moment. Is your chair uncomfortable? Is someone nearby getting on your nerves? Rejoice! The present moment is always with us. As T.S. Eliot said, time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future. And time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. T.S. Eliot was pretty dense, but I, I, feel, I feel there's something in there, right? <laughs> so, farewell. Or farewell early for next week. What really matters to me is you. Your smiles, your warmth, and your spirit will stay with me for the rest of my life. You have had a hand in my very formation as a minister, and I have the opportunity to move on and minister to others. As I go, please remember something that my father once told me. He said, we're not all necessarily officially ordained, but we're all ministers in the sense that we're called to minister to one another. Or, as Keanu Reeves so perfectly put it once upon a time, be excellent to each other, dudes. (laughs) So I think Megan helpfully uh, shared with us about Daniel Gilbert and some of the stuff that he, I think, has importantly said. That reminded me of another Gilbert. Some of you may know the name Elizabeth Gilbert. Uh, wrote Eat, Pray, Love, most famously. Uh, She's been speaking some recently on all she's learned since writing that book, Eat, Pray, Love, you know, what she's done with that more than $75,000 a year that she (laughs) got from that book. And she said, uh, as she's thought about, you know, that that was a search for meaning, right, of uh, meaning through eating, you know, eating through praying, eating through loving. And she said a lot of what she hears around, like, uh, people in search for meaning is they're looking for purpose, right? And she said, the more she thought about that, this trying to find your purpose felt really heavy to her, and it felt really complex and difficult and like a lot of pressure. And so, and that, if that works for you, no problem, you know, purpose-driven, it's, it's working for you. But the tweak that worked for her, she said, is switching from asking herself about the purpose-driven life to a curiosity-driven life. Just asking herself, what am I curious about? And, and then following that and following those questions and looking for the answers. 
So I'll offer you that framework, and I would say some of that is what led me to seminary, as I think you helpfully shared about as well. I can think about you know coming out of a, a very conservative Southern Baptist childhood and going becoming a religion philosophy double major. I started out going to the Baptist Student Union. Some of you may have been a part of that or heard of that in college my freshman year, but by the end of my freshman year, I drifted over to, and some of you may know about this, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. It still exists. Uh, they were much more open to asking questions. But I came to discover that they they thought, kind of like TSL, at the end of the journey, that you would actually come to what they thought the right answers were. That was the part they didn't tell me up front. And so I discovered it took me about a year to figure that out. Uh, so they were a lot looser, a lot more open to questions. But then by the end of my sophomore year, I was asked to be in leadership. And so they had, you know, had this big sales pitch. Uh, and... Uh, and, and then let me know, oh, and by the way, to be in leadership, you have to sign this doctrinal statement that said stuff like, you know, you have to believe in the inerrancy of the Bible and the, it's, I mean, literally it said things like this in the big seminary words, right? The necessity and efficacy of the substitutionary atonement and the, you know, the literal truth of the bodily resurrection and all, all these things like that. And, and what I told this person to her face, there's a whole other story I could go into, but I said, I want to be honest with you. I'm not sure whether I believe the things on this piece of paper, but I'm pretty sure I won't by this time next year. <laughs> so, and, and so and that part, that's part of what led me to seminary. And then I think, as Megan helpfully shared, uh, I think what I learned in seminary, so I was offered in seminary, I'll tell you just two more quick things. Uh, I was offered actually a really sweet youth ministry position, the admissions director. You know, the reason I went to Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth instead of to Yale, Yale's a nice four-letter word, uh, but Yale would have put me in debt, whereas Bright paid me $5,000 a year to go there. So I went to Bright, and the admissions director, who had given me this sweet package uh, for graduate studies, uh, offered me the youth ministry position at his congregation. And that was great. But what, again, I felt, I honestly told him, I'm like, I'm really honored that you're offering me this. And I have no business being the spiritual leader for young people at this. I mean, just really, I, I was like, I was too uncomfortable with my questions. And what seminary did for me was make me more comfortable with the question mark at the end of that sentence, what really matters. That by the end of seminary, I did end up being a youth minister for seven years and was quite good at it, um, I think. You can ask the young people <laughs> back in Louisiana whether they agree. Uh, so what seminary doesn't give you, depending on which seminary you go to, if you go to a liberal seminary, as both of us did, you're not going to get answers. But I think you're going to get better, as Roca said, Rainer Marie Roca in his letters, to a young poet, you're going to get better at living the questions. Like, I felt like what happened to me is I was, you know, as a Southern Baptist, I was given these answers, and then as I started asking questions, my bedrock crumbled. And I still feel like I don't have bedrock. I feel like I still am riding these currents, but I feel like I'm much better, so to speak, at surfing. And, and that's part of what I think we can, you know, as, as the waves come. You know, I don't have a solid foundation against the waves, but I'm much better at surfing, and I think that's part of what we can learn and do here together. So as you prepare to go from this place and into the week to come, may you continue your journey with love. Whatever your questions are, may you live those questions with love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, or peace, or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving.